About 30 seconds. You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. You're safe to Something, I think it's six. Thank you. And this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me, as always, are Rebecca Watson, Jay Novella, hey guys, and Evan Bernstein. skepticism and science and podcasting into a huge convention like this. So thank you, Derek. <laughs> this is only our second year, but already, yeah, we love coming here. I mean, how often do you get to have your picture taken with Alex from A Clockwork Orange? It's a pretty well, little brother. I'm hiding under the table. Never uh, okay. <laughs> in a sexy way. <laughs> Apparently Malcolm McDowell's done some other role, minor roles, but we know we know what he was. Although Jay, Jay keeps calling him Roddy McDowell. Yeah, Jay keeps coming over to me. He's like, Rebecca, we met Roddy McDowell. I'm like, holy crap! <laughs> <laughs> what did he look like? Shut up. Got a hot mic here. Oh, there's Derek. Thank you, Derek. And it's also great because we get to meet a lot of our skeptical friends from around the world that we that we only have a virtual relationship with and we don't get to uh, see in person very often. We just met. For the first time, uh, Dr. Rachel Dunlop from Australia. Just uh, this and, and of course, many old friends now. Now, you're probably wondering what this picture is doing up there. Uh, we, we we definitely notice, however, that the skeptics are not in costume, and it's starting to feel a little. <laughs> Most of the skeptics are not. <laughs> 
actually, I, I hate to say this, but Jay, the four the four guys here, we had a plan to come up with a lame costume for Dragon Con. We were going to all grow goatees and come as our mirror. mirror. <laughs> 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 I have a little stick on. <laughs> but, but we failed. We couldn't grow decent goatees. <laughs> George Rogers growing overnight. <laughs> <laughs> it was pathetic. So anyway, here we see uh, the lovely Cheryl Loxton, who was exploring uh, steampunk as a possible skeptical costume. I think she pulls it off very, very well. But we, we had to, to, to replicate this experiment. So. <laughs> You're really making that work. So you can see Rebecca looking on adoringly yes. from the side of the picture. Adoringly, Steve. Because <laughs> I was talking to her right then. You know what she was saying? Dude, don't crush my melon. <laughs> don't take my catchphrase. <laughs> sure. <laughs> This picture is George with his incredibly large, invisible girlfriend. <laughs> I, I, I love taking pictures of George Crabb because he's always the sharpest dressed guy in the room. Yeah. Which I, I suspect that's why he likes hanging out with skeptics. <laughs> yeah, we lower the bar a little bit more. Here we see that Jay finally perfected that shrink ray he was working on. That was one hell of a night, guys. Though he insisted that not everything shrunk equally. Last night, you know, at 12 o'clock, everyone's partying. I'm like, hey, we gotta prep the show for tomorrow. We actually have a show to put on tomorrow. And this was, you know, Rebecca's response. Yes, I am. All right. So, uh, we have a few news items we're going to cover, and then we're going to leave a lot of the show for the live questions. That's always our favorite part. Um, we were looking through, we had a working dinner yesterday, looking through some news items, and Rebecca came across this item. I did. I get a, I get a Google alert on the most ridiculous things, and one of them is UFOs. And the internet went crazy yesterday because Google mysteriously put up a UFO logo, and nobody could explain why. And for some reason, like, you know, normal people would be like, oh, okay, there's a UFO on Google. That's great. Um, not normal people <laughs> flood the internet with comments like the one you see on the screen there, um, which I'll, I'll read in the, in the style in which it is written. Actually, the logo appeared due to the fact that a video was really showing UFO activity in Moscow yesterday on September 4th. Look it up. <laughs> You know, we we got a chuckle out of this because you know it's what is the cat's lock and crazy people? <laughs> Why? Well, Rebecca, the, people use caps lock so much now. Like we need something past that. So I was thinking we need super caps lock. <laughs> we need like we need to be able to make it twice as big and it actually has to make noise. Right. Or it needs to be blinking. For when oh, throwing caps lock isn't crazy enough for you. <laughs> in Exeter, New Hampshire was a UFO festival, so maybe that's why. Maybe it's because of Dragon Con. Cares, honestly. <laughs> the internet cares. All right. <laughs> 
Is it the chocolate bunny? No. No, it's not. Don't eat it. Oh, God, my God. Now, we're looking at a picture here of the Mongolian death worm. You have to say it like that, otherwise it doesn't mean the same thing. <laughs> it's and this is clearly out of a D&D book. Clearly. <laughs> right. only, the only thing more fierce than this is the Alaskan bull worm. Which all you parents out there might get that reference. Otherwise, no. no Not so much. No one. Um, so the one, I, 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 I heard everything. Take that one out of the act. But even Joe Nickel, a famous cryptozoologist and skeptic, hadn't heard of the Mongolian death worm. I heard of the Mongolian death worm. I love the Mongolian death worm. You thought it was a dance, though. It's part of my D-boy style. That mouth clearly does D10 damage. D10? <laughs> My whole life. <laughs> I love the Mongolian death worm because, you know, take a creature that is not at all frightening. <laughs> it's a worm. It's a worm. <laughs> and yet somehow, somehow they put. It's, it's like the thing from Tremors. No. Tremors? Is that the one with Kevin Bacon? Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, to make it scary, they say, okay, but it spits acid. And farts like. It's a big nasty piece. Why are we talking about? We're talking about oh, right. some guy called Richard Freeman, which I thought was the guy from Half Life, right? launched a mission into the Gobi Desert and said, we're going to find the, the Mongolian uh, death worm or the thing that, that sounds like that. And he, so he now got his press releases out saying, after, he, after his expedition, he doesn't have the actual worm, right? But he says, the worm certainly exists. When we talked to people during our trip in Mongolia, they were all quite certain that about that. They didn't believe it could spit electricity, but they did believe it was venomous. They're not idiots. <laughs> <laughs> They're very afraid of it. A whole family packed up their tent, tent hut and moved when they heard of sightings of the worm. So we launched a scientific expedition into Mongolia and came back with anecdotes. That's, that's research money well spent. Rebecca, could you please read the first two sentences with cab locks? Cryptozoology. Do you guys know what this is? Right. And when they when these things mature, they turn into aliens, of course. Um, so th this fell into the hands, conveniently enough, of a taxidermist in Texas who's going to preserve it for posterity. Now, these kind of weird creatures get found, you know, dead animals that look weird, get found all the time. And rather than saying, oh, look at that weird dead animal that's hardly the Now we've got an internet news cycle, it's got to be something supernatural, right? So if it's dogish, 
It's a Lachacara, right? That's what it is. Although... <laughs> He's clearly off his meds for the show, guys. <laughs> Um, but I think it's probably... Oh, here, so here's the guy, Jerry Ayer, and he says, I don't want to be known as, a, as the chupacabra quack. People say there's a mythical beast and that I have one. I'll call it chupacabra because people love it, but I don't know what it is. Jerry Ayer, chupacabra <laughs> These dog-like corpses that get found, they're just coyotes. Or they're coyotes that have mated with a domestic dog and produced something even weirder than just a coyote. But, you know, they're, they're funny-looking. They're, they're not quite canines. They're funny-looking to us. So, anyway, it's easy. Especially if they're half, their fur is falling off and they look, they're emaciated because they're, either they're, they starve to death or something. Or they're mange. Or they're mange, right. They, 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 look, uh, they, they look bizarre, right? Bob takes off one of his pirate clothes. Bob takes the mask off. You really need that hand. I don't want to feel naked. You should not want to see my hair. Germans to do this. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're serious. Entire country. Right. And the 
this this crystal, right? And very bizarre crystal, when you kill it, you get absolute zero. It allows you to the geometry is incredibly bizarre. It's actually kind of like like ice. You've got, you've got, uh, imagine a three-sided pyramid at the vertices you have in the atoms. And when you kill it really, really close to absolute zero, the atoms, which are really kind of like water magnets, they line up in a certain way. And in some instances, this creates a magnetic monocle in the middle of the pyramid. You can imagine the four-sided pyramid in the middle and the bottom, you have this magnetic monocle, whether it's south or north, appears. And uh, using, now they didn't see this directly because the charges are so tiny, but using neutron scattering, they, they determined, and they firmly believe that these are real magnetic monocles. But I think that's an interesting application of science, and uh, it's not a very interesting, it's something I don't think we would ever see. So we got it, it's pretty interesting stuff. Yeah, I was definitely, when I heard this, my first reaction was, no way, magnetic monopole. I mean, come on. That's something that you couldn't use your scientific and you were talking about. That was my second one. I was like, how was that your picture? The cycle were just right. I know we would have gotten Bob on that one. Because, you know, this is like almost a mythic thing that, you know, they've been saying for decades, oh, there's no magnetic monopoles. No one's ever seen one. They've been looking for them. Maybe they exist, but, you know, maybe they don't. So this is, if this pans out, as always, I'd say this is one, you know, one lab did this. If this is replicable and this is true, this is huge. Now suddenly there's magnetic monopoles. Like, through my whole life up to this point, there haven't been magnetic monopoles. I think Rebecca, you were just talking at the last panel, somebody asked, is, you know, how often do you get surprised and change your mind because of new evidence? Well, how about today? This is huge. Well, yesterday. Well, yes. But does it start out as a regular magnet? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, absolutely. They start out with magnetism, and they, then they contrive a way to, to create a magnetic monopole. The Bob and I are talking, is it really a monopole, or is the other pole just sort of diffused in the crystal somehow? I don't know. That, that's it's always possible because they detected it in an indirect method. But these scientists, though, it's not just one institute and one study. This is an international team of scientists uh, around the world, and it's, it's actually a couple studies. They also created these monopoles as diffuse sort of gas. So these guys are extremely confident uh, that they really have this, and we will see if it really pans out, but they're pretty confident about it. Yeah, I mean, this is not cold fusion, right? But this is still big. This is big enough that until it gets replicated, we're not going to be rewriting the textbooks, right? I mean, I think we need a little bit more. To, this has to be vetted a little bit more. But still, this is a, this is the first time anyone's made a plausible claim of having a magnetic monopole. So very cool. I was excited because I thought it was m- magnetic monopoly. <laughs> Airplane. Do you like the games of, like when you're traveling so that they don't move around the pieces of? Well, actually, when when Jack announced it at dinner, I said magnetic monopoles. <laughs> <laughs> I would have loved to have contributed something to that discussion, but I can't focus on anything while the same. It's giving me your gun out. <laughs> I have my uh, I have my hand of awesome. <laughs> <laughs> So we love doing live questions and answers at our, at our live events because, you know, we don't get to do this when we're recording the show from our living rooms, right? So that we're now up to the Q&A part of the show. Does somebody have a, Derek, somebody have a microphone? Our good friend Joe Anderson with, uh, with the microphone. I'll take the opportunity to thank Joe, who's actually been our chauffeur for the weekend. He's been driving us back and forth to our crappy hotel that we got stuck in. I'm <laughs> here. Who can I get better? Who can I get better? <laughs> Just keep up. You would believe the ridicule of your private attacks. 
me, for one, uh, and also my friend and fellow skeptic Tracy King in London. Um, she owns her own marketing company, and she uses it to uh, work for clients like Richard Wiseman, uh, who does a fantastic job of branding himself, of putting himself out there, getting on YouTube, uh, beautiful websites and things like that. So we're, you know, things are going right in, in many areas in terms of marketing. And, and on the topic of marketing, um, you know, it, it's often, I always used to get teased for going to school for marketing and communication. It's kind of a BS. Well, I did get a BS. However, it's important for people, everyone, to understand what goes into marketing and what goes into advertising and how things are being sold to you. Everyone should get like, ba- like a basic marketing textbook and read it because it's really important it's, and it's a wonderful thing to be skeptical about and especially if you have children, one of the best ways to get them thinking skeptically is watch TV with them and say, now do you really think that toy does that? Just get them thinking about the messages that are being uh, thrown in their direction. I think it's a... It's a ah, yeah. okay, I'll stop. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so. I'd say overall in the uh, in the skeptical universe, like things have changed tremendously in the past ten years, like especially since podcasting and Web 2.0, everything has evolved so much. And I think the reason why we're all here is actually because of podcasting. I was just talking with Derek last night about this. Um, but what we're waiting for is somebody in skepticism to penetrate to the next level. I'm not reaching for the Oprah level, but even you know, getting getting the, our skeptical heroes to get on TV shows, to get to get much more publicity, to get the books being bought, to get you know more people involved, more money coming in, and you know get that snowball happening. But right now, we're still under the radar. Hi, um, there's someone handing out Z-Guys flyers every night. I want to know, is it rational to beat the tar out of him? Because I saw his flyers twice, and he said something to me, I would have beat him up. I live only 20 miles away from ground zero, and have to deal with this garbage a lot more than I'd like to. We don't uh, encourage violence. (laughs) Uh, Especially because it won't actually help. Although, you know, we do all love seeing um, Bart Sabral get punched in the in the kisser. But, uh, yeah, we actually had, I was just on a, a panel with um, TV's Adam Savage, uh, and we, we had a uh, someone ask a question that was about, uh, you know, the, a new study that came out that was about the something thermite being found at ground zero. It's like, this stuff just does not die. Uh, and there's, the thing is, I haven't seen this new study, so... Maybe okay, um, but there's been no new there's no new evidence. You know, we we go over it again and again and again, and this stuff will persist. I'm hoping it's died down now to the point where most people don't really buy into any of it, and that that stuff's been so thoroughly debunked that I think the average person on the street knows that we know what happened. Uh, I don't know what the recent stats are. I mean, it was up to like 30% of people were thinking that there was some something or something. The problem with that, I think, is a lot of surveys say yeah. you think that the Bush administration had something with that. Oh, yeah. Jackasses, you know, so people will say, you know. So I, I think that it skews a bit. I don't think their numbers are very good at all. Yeah, that's probably true. But I think the subtext of that question was, yes, there's a great deal of frustration at hearing BS over and over again that's been debunked thoroughly. Um, but if you're going to be in the skepticism game, you absolutely just have to deal with that. You, know, you just have to tell you to calm down, 
Take it easy. Perry used to say, take it easy. That's quite a Perry's favorite term. And just, you know, just calmly go over it yet again. You just have to be up for that. Otherwise, walk away. Because if you're going to get frustrated for violence every time he says something stupid to you, you can't be a skeptical activist because that's going to happen every day. I guess my question is, is maybe along the same lines, and that is how do you parse out some of those things and along an ethical line? Um, because I work with the severely and chronically mentally ill, so I do work with people who genuinely believe um, things that are false, fixed, um, untrue, and genuinely hilarious. And <laughs> you have an example? <laughs> You know, I've had to, to run into another room so I can go. Um, so, um, so how do you parse that out so you could separate, you know, that crowd from, say, the you know, the town hall meeting crowd? It's, it's not easy. I mean, I, and we talked about this before. And I think the fact that I have no, neuro, neurological training, I bring to bear a lot because if I see that somebody has a lot of features, I think they're over that fuzzy line where I would say, all right, this is really a manifestation of mental illness. Then I try very hard not to deal with it at all. Um, but. Some, if it's a claim that's out there in the public domain that's being presented on television and you know on the internet and in movies, then we need to deal with the subject matter. So one way to deal with it is to separate the questions from the person, right? I don't want to deal with this person's psychosis, but let's just deal with the factual claims of did the towers collapse under their weight or was there thermite there? We can deal with those. So that's one way. And the other one is just to ignore, like you know, now the iconic crazy guy that we will not bother to deconstruct his claims, right, is the time cube guy, right? I think we're dealing there with somebody who clearly is across that fuzzy border into um, you know, a thought disorder. It's not worth deconstructing his claims, and, and we, we haven't and, and we won't. That's to separate the claims from the person and try to just stay away from the anonymous cranks that are really just serving nothing but their own thought disorder. Hi, I'm Joshua Atlanta, and my question is for Bob, that you're all welcome to answer if you wish. Um, in the near future, researchers will protect such replicating nanomachines. Would you be willing to volunteer to be the first person in a, in a trial? The, nano, the nanites can do whatever you want. They can, be, they can repair your heart or give you telescope eyes or increase your decomposition. Yeah. <laughs> we talked a lot about this this weekend, actually. I will definitely not be a guinea pig. I will not be the first person on that line, but I will be the hundredth of the thousand, definitely. But I, I don't agree with your premise because the research has kind of abandoned the idea of self-replicating nanomachines because obviously that's a pretty nasty scenario, great boom and all that. Now they're kind of going towards uh, the idea of, uh, of nano, nano little nanofab factories like a printer that will be able to take a new raw material and molecule by molecule or whatever construct what we need to construct based on the software that we introduce to the system. So that's kind of where we're going uh, with that. Because yeah, they, they self-replicate, that's that's a pretty scary scenario. It'd be really you could imagine what you know you program these things and you can lose the biosphere and then a few days later the biosphere is gone. Um, so yeah, it's a pretty scary scenario. And they're kind of a way, you know, not dealing with that, and they're not going that direction anymore. 
Also, I'll just point out that you say the first person. First person would not be the first living thing to get any kind of treatment like that. So just for ethical reasons, we will kill a lot of animals first. <laughs> Why don't we just build an animal or, or a human without a brain with the nanomachines and then test on them? Don't get me started. Yeah. <laughs> that was the point. <laughs> I would, do, I would do experimental research on me if I, if I had no other recourse than that. I'd take a shot at something you know, out there like, like that kind of down type stuff. Hi, guys. Uh, this goes back to a marketing question. Right now, I feel like the people in this room, you guys, we have a marketing problem because we call ourselves essentially negative words. Skeptical is a negative word. There's a look at Jenny McCarthy's song, and she calls it something like positive actors. Even though she's spreading our lives, they have a really positive upfront kind of age. And so now we have, um, well, atheists, for example, calling themselves brights. I think that's a really bad marketing decision. So what do we, what do we, what kind of placement would out there have a new marketing name for the Oh boy, we tried. Okay, we, tried. You can't, we talked about this yesterday, actually. Someone, and I talked about it. Anyway, uh, someone said yesterday, you can't choose your nickname. Uh, don't try, because then you're going to be that douchebag in college. You know? Yeah, don't do it. Be really yes. right. Um Yeah, Bright is a pretty much a total failure at this point, I think. Um, it was roundly mocked. And uh, Skeptic is not a negative term. Uh, some people do have that problem. <laughs> uh, you're never going to take a word and keep it 100% pure and good and nestle it and <laughs> raise it into uh, a brand. You, you just can't do it. Skeptic is actually a word that's in demand. Um, the 9-11 truthers took it. The moon hoaxers took it because it gives them power. Skeptic is a powerful word. And the, what I always advocate doing is not to abandon the word, but to... Rebrand it. Yeah, to, to rebrand it, to help people understand um, this is a skeptic. I'm a skeptic. Everyone I work with knows, oh, Rebecca goes to skeptical events. She's a skeptic. And they also know I'm a pretty cool person and not like a giant jerk, you know? Uh, so I think it's up to everyone who considers themselves a skeptic to wear it, you know, be proud about it, tell people you, you're a skeptic, and slowly but surely, we'll build up a positive brand around the world. Well, yeah, 10, 10, 15 years ago, skeptic seemed really synonymous with the word cynic. They were two words that were interchangeable. Now, it kind of seems that skeptic is kind of losing that association, that negative association with cynicism, and uh, hopefully that trend will continue. And there have also been some very uh, bright people who have tried to, over the decades, come up with the term to replace skeptic. And nothing else sticks, nothing else really fits what we are. I think, and I've always been an advocate for embracing it and making sure that we define what skeptic is and who it is, not let other people define who we are. And of course, if you want, you can always go with critical thinking, you can go with, you know, rationalist, science-based. Um, science you know, there are a lot of synonyms, um, but yeah, I, I don't think we should ever shy away from using the word skeptic. Yeah, I think he was talking more community-wide, not as an individual. Right. Though. Yeah.
Yeah, the basically bottom line, two choices. Fix the perception of the word skeptic or come up with a better term. No one's come up with a better term. So we are trying to fix the perception of the word skeptic. And then we're getting some traction. It's helping. We're not there yet. And also in your in sub-projects, you can branch out into other things. Like I have the science-based medicine website, using the trying to brand the science-based you know, logo, which is sort of spreading out to other things. There's now a science-based pharmacology site and a science-based parenting site. Some guy here is running that. So um, there's, you know, we're, we're experimenting with different things. These things tend to be organic and chaotic, and you can't really plan them from the top down because that, like the Bright's thing, that tends to fail. So we're, we're just going to keep doing what we're doing for now. Hi guys. Um, hey. Thank you for all you do. I really appreciate it. I, my question basically has to deal with um, public broadcasting, PBS. Um, I've noticed recently, um, well, just before I got cable, I watched a lot of PBS, and they always have to run these you know, uh, things to make money. And they get a lot of very woo kind of people involved in that. I was wondering maybe if the skeptical movement could possibly approach uh, PBS and start really pushing themselves, you know, pushing ourselves out the, on public broadcasting networks? Well, um, you should know that when they do fund drives, it's, it's usually the local station. Um, right. And PBS is an organization that provides content to these various local groups. So um, there's really no, uh, there's, there's no way to control like what these local groups are doing. But, uh, you know, I made a good run at the, the public radio <laughs> um, thing, and it's... It, it was very. It's very difficult. It, it was very difficult for me to convince them that there's an audience for um, skeptical programming. And this, 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 there's a lot of crossover between public radio and public television. That's why I'm kind of lumping the two. And and obviously most of my experience was with the, the radio side. But they, you know, they need a certain. They're, they're, they're just like a commercial station in that they want to provide the content that they think that their audience is going to want. And we just need to convince them that there is an audience there. And so, for instance, when I finally did the, the, my pilot show, Curiosity Aroused, it was tremendously received. Um, and it actually did quite a bit better than, you know, there were two other guys that did pilots at the same time. And Curiosity Aroused was picked up nationwide and in, I think, uh, maybe like 14 different major markets. And the others got like maybe two. And, you know, the, the station owners were actually flooded with letters that they forwarded to me. I mean, it was a really wonderful response. But then what happens is that the individual stations don't have the money to produce the show. So they went back to... Um, the, the company that produced this one, uh, PRX, and said, we, we want more. And PRX said, well, talk to the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. They're the guys who fund everything. The Corporation for Public Broadcasting said, no, we don't think there's really going to be a market for that. <laughs> so it, it's, it's a problem of, it's mostly, you know, to get funding, to just do a radio show, it, it takes, you know, many tens of thousands of dollars. And you have to scrape and claw for every penny when it comes to the, the public channels. So uh, this kind of lends to what I was saying before about media penetration. Like we just don't have the persona yet. Yeah. Although you know, to uh, to mention, the Skeptics Guide is played on several public radio stations mm -hmm. around the country. It's usually the, the the much smaller stations that 
uh, have, happen to have a skeptic there who likes the show and needs to fill some airtime. And so we're, we're played in, what, what would you say, like a dozen? Something like that, yeah, five or six, I think. Uh, yeah. Uh, that I know of. Something like that, but half. <laughs> Yeah, but it, it, and it's, it's you know, we, you know uh, every now and then we get a request for another station that wants to broadcast the show, and I always tell them, yeah, sure, go ahead. Um, you know, imagine if we didn't have MythBusters and if we didn't have Penn and Teller. Yeah, you know, we have we have shining stars out there, but for some reason, even though people love MythBusters, watch it. You know, I talk to anybody, you know, non-skeptical, whatever. Most people I, that I talk to, they love the show. They still don't get that that science, that's critical thinking and skepticism. You know, it just doesn't come through. Oh, but you know, one thing I do want to mention is that if you live in a, a large city or a city with a university, there's a very good chance that there's a radio station near you that plays, you know, a lot of crazy alternative stuff. And, you know, they've got dead hours where they will put you on the radio. And um, all you need to do is contact them and say, I want to be on the radio. And, uh, or you can ask them to run our show. Uh, right. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, you might have to go through a quick course or something like that, but it's really remarkably easy to do. And you can actually get your own show. And, you know, you won't get paid for it, <laughs> uh, but you can be part of the you know, the media that's putting out skeptical content. So well, I recommend that, anyone do it. That, that's sort of the PBS model. If you can find funding or self-fund, then you can produce yeah. the content and then you can try to get it picked up, you know, by the by the affiliates. Um, that's one of the things we're exploring with the Skeptologist, if you guys still remember that show. That's an you know, attempt to try to get skeptics doing a show covering paranormal topics, but doing it from a scientific, you know, skeptical point of view, but still telling the story, the kind of you know, storytelling that can make it onto an actual mass market. You know, one route to go is to find funding and then produce it and then just make it available to the PBS affiliates. So that's one way to get more science content on there. And it does get to the bigger problem of how do we make the scientific skepticism more sexy in a mass media sort of way or at least convince the executives who seem to be stuck in some very narrow ways of thinking about things that it can be sexy. And they still have some you know, irrational thinking where, okay, but if every now and then you don't find that the paranormal thing's true, then that's not good storytelling. It's like, no, I mean, not really. We don't have to make up stuff in order for this to be good storytelling. Science is, is more interesting than the, than the paranormal. Yeah, but, you know, Mythbusters has proven that. I know that, and, that, and it's, it's wonderful that they have. And when we're, you know, we, and we, the, actually, the, our episode that's airing to, you know, this weekend is an interview with Adam Savage where we talk about that exact thing, about how do we capitalize on bullshit and, and, and uh, Mythbusters to spread more shows like that. And they, uh, they have proven it, but how do we translate that into more? Adam says he's working on it. We're obviously other people working on it. We just have to keep plugging away and, and slowly, slowly chip away and break through, you know. And, and you need to give us $10 million. I forgot to find <laughs> <laughs> Are there any billionaires in the audience? Yeah. Fans, no. Jim Murphy out there? No. All right. Hey, um, I want to thank you in particular. I love the whole podcast, but the science of fiction part is my favorite. I have a son that's almost 14, and I'm sorry, he finds most of the podcast is boring. So do I. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you love science fiction, it's something we kind of play along with you guys, and we're 10 million no, it, it, he thinks I'm stupid. <laughs> stupid equals funny. I almost had him down here just to be one of his close person, but he decided to go see something else instead. Um, almost is good enough for me. 
convey. Um, I'm just curious, I know a couple of you are parents, what can we do to engage the younger crowd? I think a lot of us are sort of in a similar age range, and we have kids, mm-hmm. and particularly in the South, that we sort of bombarded with new and particularly sort of religious um, material all the time, and gets invited to church, and just an idea is to sort of bring them into the fold, and skeptics in the pub is great fun, but we can't bring our minors to it, so right. we bring them in. Skeptics are working, currently working on instituting more events for parents uh, nationwide, and we're hoping to do things that are just like Skeptics in the Pub, but without the booze. Uh, so it could be you know, skeptics, like skeptics in the, in the Park yeah. and things like that, like family days where you can bring all the kids out and have a good time. So. I think um, all kids really like science. For some reason, and, and I've never met anyone that disagrees with that. There's something fascinating to them about it, because you know, and whatever we could talk about that for hours, reasoning why, but they do, and you can and you can really hook them with that bug. And like doing what you're doing is a perfect example. You should do that. You should, you know, like Rebecca said, watch TV with them, talk to them. You know, buy buy things that are like like buy them a telescope, and get involved yourself. I mean, you're going to learn too. You know, I mean, my brother Steve, like became a birder by teaching his daughter about it and now the two of them have this incredible hobby together and like she rattles stuff she's incredible she actually can recognize the, the sounds of birds and identify them and everything so we have a captive audience with children it really it comes down to the parents teaching them and that's where the best education can really come from those are the people that really should be teaching their kids science and skepticism and critical thinking so you're doing it just do more. <laughs> um, another thing is we're also trying to line up some, some interviews with producers of children's show that are science-based to help, through our show, uh, help spread the word, kids who listen and so forth so they can hear about these things. And can also we get sit the science kid on? Yes, yeah, so science kid is one kid. of them. Yeah, it's a great show. Uh, Fetch with Ruff Ruffman is another great show. If anyone's seen that, working on, on getting a hold of those, those folks so they can share their experiences and knowledge with us. Yeah, I just also want to emphasize, you know, what I found to be most effective is just direct one-on-one attention to your kids. I mean, kids soak up adult attention. And you could parlay that into whatever you want. You know, you know recently, Evan and I took our younger daughters to the local museum. Yeah. It was a daddy-daughter day, sort of the, you know, the whole day with them. And But it was going through the Peabody Museum, you know, right near where we live. We, you know, we happen to have an awesome museum near us. But Why is my <laughs> 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 Yes. No, this is Autumn, yeah, my younger daughter Autumn, who loves her Uncle Bob and loves the whole Halloween skeleton undead thing. So yeah. Yeah, that's but, healthy. That's good. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. Absolutely. But uh, yeah, so Autumn and Rachel, we took a wonderful time because there were dinosaurs and even the minerals were interesting and the stuffed animal and everything. And yeah, you know, we just they have a certain amount of attention, and you know, they're, that they could that they could spend. And you know, Evan and I would throw in the science whenever we could, and make it engaging, play off of the displays, and, you know, ask them questions, try to make them figure things out. When they ask you a question, it's really good to reflect it right back at them. How, wow, how could we know what color the dinosaur was, or whatever it is that they're asking, and just try to engage their critical thinking. And they soaked it up. So you just there's no substitute for time when it comes to kids. Hey, can I make a serious for once? Yeah. 
can can you invite other parents in your area to come out to the museum with you, and you take everybody's kids through and do that? Yeah, yeah. that would be a good group of men, absolutely. Why don't um, sure. listeners who are in Connecticut or the New England area write in, and we'll, uh, we'll we'll try to organize something. Maybe you know that. Like you were saying, the uh, skeptics in the park type of thing. Like yeah. That that actually is a fantastic idea. Yeah, Boston skeptics actually. We we did a trip to the museum of science, and a couple people brought their kids along. Um, and we're going to do a lot more things like that. And in fact, I'm going to be traveling for um, the next few months, and so I'm not going to be able to host skeptics in the pub. And my friend Liz is a school teacher. She teaches preschoolers, and she's like, "Who's better to stand in front of a bunch of drunks?" <laughs> so she's going to take over for that, and uh, she's got a lot of great ideas about running little, um, like mini uh, skeptical camps and things like that, just like day-long things where parents can bring their kids out and they can learn, you know, critical thinking stuff while having fun with their parents. So, yeah, we're we're, we're looking into a lot of things like that. Hi. Science scouting? No. <laughs> uh, just kidding. Love it. <laughs> Hi guys, my name is Josh. Uh, love the show. Uh, I have two part questions. One's really short. Can you please say hi to Richard Kleinschmidt? He's a uh, friend no. of mine. <laughs> he loves you guys. He can make it. Uh, but he's. But yeah, can we say Kleinschmidt? <laughs> <laughs> And since we're saying hi to people, uh, Rebecca, wasn't your mother's birthday yesterday or something? Oh, <laughs> And uh, happy birthday to Claudette, Bob's wife. And one more birthday, happy birthday, Maddie. Yes, happy birthday, Maddie. Maddie. Just don't worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> What kind of mystery is that? <laughs> okay, part two. I'm currently in grad school and they haven't kicked me out yet. I'm studying human uh, primate evolution. And uh, Richard's in the lab right down the hall from me. That's who you shout So I get wrapped up in the creationism evolution thing a lot. And I was wondering awesome. if you had any opinions about why it seems to me, from my personal experience, that the majority of the Semi-credentialed scientists on the other side are engineers. Are, yes. <laughs> well, how did I know you were going to say that? I wrote an article about it, and you can actually find it on the Nest website. We have all of our old articles up there about engineers and the second law of thermodynamics. I don't know. I can only speculate. I have to always reinforce, this is not a knock against engineers or, or that type of science. I think you know, that which... I, I, I think the Right. There are different specialties within the field of science, and I find that there are um, cognitively, there, you know, if you sort of map out the different sciences, and there are some sciences that are farther away from other sciences than others, right? So there's like a sort of a clinical uh, cognitive uh, knowledge that people have that doesn't, you can't really be a good physician because you're a good um, astrophysicist, right? The, the, the thought processes are just too different. Even though there's the underlying core logic is the same, you know, the scientific method is the same, but then there's just the skill sets with clinical stuff that doesn't apply to astrophysics and the other way around. And I think the historical sciences uh, of evolution are pretty far away from 
the kind of skill sets that engineers develop. So they're just not prepared, I think, to deal with the kinds of claims that are being made in evolutionary biology. So, and but those who are otherwise well-educated scientists and and understand, you know, have learned about evolution, uh, will do. With, they're probably very bright and they learn with it. I think the problem is when engineers think that, and I've had engineers tell me this in many contexts. Other other types of scientists as well. It's not unique to engineers, but say I'm an engineer. I know how the scientific process works. Well, you know how a subset of the scientific process works, and that subset does not apply very well to this separate subset of evolutionary biology. Or it's Sometimes it's been in the context of clinical decision-making. Clinical decision-making is totally alien to the kind of decision-making you make as an engineer. An engineer once said to me, well, you've got to push the system till it breaks, then you know where its breaking point is. Yeah, we don't do that in medicine. We have five minutes to go, so we have, we have to kind of close up. Yeah. One more question. One more. The alien has a question. Uh, yes, the alien. Come up here, sir. It's rational thinking. Two two words. Bill Maher. You can be one and not be the other. There is no such thing as a true skeptic. And I, the way I like to describe it is that you know there is the idea of there being a skeptic. It, it doesn't really exist. It, we talk about skepticism. It's a process that you right. use. And you can choose to apply that process to your entire life, to a little portion of your life. Uh, I try to hit the entire uh, span, but not everybody does. And so, yeah, it's possible to be uh, to consider yourself a skeptic, still be religious. Um, and it's yeah, but most of us, most of us are either atheist or agnostic. The, I think the, the only survey I'm aware of, uh, which I think was published in the Skeptical Inquirer, is that 70% overlap. So that's the figure that I have in my head. I don't know how really good that data is. You know, survey to survey. Yeah, it makes sense. Take that with a grain of salt. But, and that kind of fits my rough, you know, sort of anecdotal experience. That, yeah, it's about a 70% overlap between science and skepticism and non-belief in terms of the religious views of our culture. Because also you have to say, what religious views, right? I mean, we're probably all skeptics. Of, as Randy says, what do you mean, Thor? Do I believe in Thor? No. I mean, most people here don't believe in Thor. But, um, so there's, there's a lot of overlap for obvious reasons. However, people are different. And you know, some people really love science and don't are really apathetic towards religion or, or hold on religious views, and, and that's fine. Or, and other people really think that you know, evil, I mean, that religion is an evil scourge destroying our world, but maybe it's kind of soft in terms of their dedication to science. Uh, more. But um, <laughs> so the, the, the overlap is not 100 percent, and that's okay. And the other thing is that's okay. We, we, I don't think that we should ever take the approach that we need to have a litmus test for what's a true skeptic or skepticism or what we you know how to go about doing things. We try to say it's all good, you know, as long as you want to learn and you want to investigate stuff and you care about you know rationality and truth. You know, the, the, sort of this is the big tent skepticism is always the approach that we've up here taken. We have our certain things that we care about more. You know, we care about science. That's what we kind of focus on. But it's all good, and we try not to get, like, narrow or judgmental about how we're supposed to do this or how we should do this or what qualifies as a skeptic. I think that's any kind of exclusivity kind of approach is, is not a good idea.
We have, we have one minute left. Okay, I just want to mention, like, not only, like, that's an awesome costume, and there are a couple of others, I just want to randomly call out you on the end. You're wearing my favorite t-shirt ever. I own that t-shirt. It's the Yeti corn. saying I don't even exist. And it's hilarious. <laughs> Is Richard Saunders here? Oh, we were at his podcast. <laughs> he's going to be sleeping. He's going to be bummed. All right, so first person to raise your hand correctly with this. Ready? Ready? Everyone ready? Who wears a large? The guy in the blue shirt. Just throw it to me. No, come on up. Shirts there. We appreciate your donations. Well, that was our live recording from DragonCon 2009, and now we're all back at home, back in front of our computers. So, what'd you guys think? I miss DragonCon. <laughs> it was awesome. It was a lot of fun. I want to be back there. <laughs> or shut up, Bob. You had no, so I much loved fun. It. I loved it. It's Actually, off the hook. What's not to love? Hanging out with, like, I love all you guys, but I don't get a lot of time with Bob, and hanging out with Bob was so much fun. Oh, I yeah. the same way. In particular, <laughs> going, like, I so wanted um, Howling Mad Murdoch's autograph from the A-Team. You mean Barkley Bob, from the next generation. Exactly. Isn't well, Bob's like, Bob's like, Howling well, Matt yeah, Barkley. I'll go with you. Sure. I'm like, please, someone come with me. Bob's like, yeah, sure, whatever. Who the, who the hell is that? <laughs> and then we walk in there. He's like, who is it? Who is it? I'm like, that guy over there. He's like, oh, my God. He's from my favorite Star Trek episode. <laughs> <laughs> For the record, I know, I know I knew who Dwight Schultz was. The cool thing was that, yeah, he's, he's off the hook. I love him. But there's a lot of people there that are I'm I'm a big fan of, but the just doing doing it with Rebecca is what made it so special. Because I didn't I didn't talk to anybody else. Bob, I've never had a chance to really connect with you know. Like obviously we connect every week, and I adore Bob. But it was our special little moment. It was, and it was really good. It was it was fun. I know I enjoyed all of Dragon Con though. That was amazing. I can't wait to do it again. Let's do it again. I I want to do it. How about hard. next year? I want to do it hard next year though. I mean like. Thursday to Monday, not this Friday to Sunday crap. That's what I did. And yeah, we, you guys need to stay longer. Right, and we need to go in costume. Hello, all of us, not just the pirate skeleton. Bob, you need all to help of us. Me with the costume. You got. I'll help everybody. We're, we're, we're just got to brainstorm what would be good as a group. We should do. Yeah, we should do a group costume. Well, we were trying to do uh, towards the end of Dragon Con. Uh, me and a few other people, like um, Cheryl Herbert, Daniel Loxon's wife, and and Jay, and and whatnot, was come up with the skeptically themed costume. Yeah, yeah, challenge. Can I say I I adored Cheryl. I had never had chan- a chance to hang out with her either, <laughs> and she was awesome because she did exactly what I wanted to do, <laughs> which is build an entire costume at Dragon Con. Like she shows up one day and she looks totally normal and then an hour later she's like dudes look what I got goggles <laughs> and then <laughs> and we're like yeah those are cool goggles and she goes away and a few hours later she's like and a corset <laughs> and then she's got, like, the, the bustle and the skirt and she was just awesome she yeah I got to hang out with her and Daniel we, we walked around and we're, we're doing the whole costume gawking thing and uh, we had a blast like we were just like trying to get caffeinated and freaking out there's so many awesome costumes there I mean, I mean, you guys told me about this last year. I had no idea. It's a freak show. 
Yeah, I wasn't there last year either. So I thought I was going to come and be like, I, I thought I would feel completely alone and freaked out by all of the nerds. But instead, it was like, oh, these are my people. <laughs> well, because there's there's like two cons going on there. There's a skeptical conference, right? Skeptical science and podcasting tracks there, and that's a couple of hundred, two, three hundred people that you know. A lot of the people in the skeptical community, all of our friends that we don't get to see, but once or twice a year, like Phil played and Richard Saunders or Brian Dunning, or we're all there trying to hang out with each other. And plus, we're all of our a lot of our listeners are there and. Just, you know, skeptics, new skeptics who didn't know we existed, you know, who, who meet us at the con. Mm-hmm. But it's embedded in Dragon Cons. We then you could take a break and walk around and, and walk past Darth Vader and... Sauron. Sauron. Lego Boba Fett. Just unbelievable stuff. But yeah, yeah like even the, even the people who were just there for Dragon Con, who had never heard of skepticism at all, were so cool. And I think one of my, one of my personal favorite moments was... During, I did a panel with Adam Savage, which was so much fun. And um, a woman got up to ask a question, and she directed it at me. Like I'm at a, a panel with Phil Plate and Adam Savage and Scott Sigler and and Melissa Kirchner, and she she asked me a question, which is awesome enough. But then she asks about like pregnancy pseudoscience and she says <laughs> she's never heard of me or skeptic but she loves the whole idea of there being a skeptical movement right and i love that i love like reaching an audience that just didn't even see us coming who still tolerate us and yeah. even maybe <laughs> like us and it's just the second year of the skeptical track at dragon con it's definitely very successful so you know, we have to give kudos to derek and swoopy for basically bringing skepticism and podcasting to Dragon Con. Well done. Oh, yeah. They did a wonderful job. job. And they even managed to live stream a large chunk of the Skeptrack so people at home could tune in. There's so much going on at this convention. I mean, I I didn't know that there was a a panel on cryonics, and a listener to the show contacted me on Facebook last week and just said, would you be interested in joining our panel? I was like, oh, my God, yeah, it'd be great. And I had a great time. Yeah, there was actually too much to do. There was so much going on. I was on a panel about the apocalypse that was on the apocalypse oh, track. God, awesome. <laughs> it was the an entire track. track of apocalypse stuff. And if any of you guys running the track, like I had a blast. I really enjoyed doing that panel. But if any of you are listening right now, you need to have the rest of these guys on. Like Bob needs to come on and talk about zombies. <laughs> oh, yeah, you got to have us talking about the zombie idea. apocalypse. I mean, come I on. so I so wanted you guys on that panel with me because that would have rolled. So maybe next year. Yeah, the last but... year for that track will be 2012, though. So <laughs> right, <laughs> Enjoy it while it's the, the last around. year for every track. Good one. Good mm-hmm. one. Well, we didn't do a science or fiction during the live show because we just had the hour. We wanted to leave a lot of it for, for Q&A. So we're going to do the usual wrap-up stuff now. We're going to do science or fiction. Who's that noisy? Uh, so here we go. Let's do it. It's time for science or fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fictitious. And then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. You guys ready for this week? Let's do it. I'm so ready. Oh, yeah. Here we go. Item number one. Programmers have demonstrated visual recognition software that is able to read captured distorted text as well as humans. Item number two. A team at MIT has finally figured out the three-dimensional structure of cement. 
And item number three, engineers have developed the first functioning electrical circuit that runs entirely off the energy inside a tree. Evan, go first. Yes. Okay. So these programmers apparently have demonstrated visual recognition software able to read CAPTCHA distorted text as well as humans. Yeah, I mean, that's entirely plausible. I'm surprised that CAPTCHA isn't already sort of this behind-the-times kind of security feature. Real quick, CAPTCHA is when you go to a website and you see disoriented letters or skewed letters and then you have to type them in, and the idea is that you know software would not be able to see that and interpret it as the letters. It's a very complicated thing. But yeah, it's the thing that wasn't working on the SGU contact page for a long time. Now, to see it as well as humans, though, that might be the catch there. So I'm going to come back to that one. The second one was the team at MIT that finally figured out the three-dimensional structure of cement. I think they figured out it was like a cube or a block, like a cinder block. So they finally figured that out. Good job, MIT. And then the last one, engineers developed the first functioning electrical circuit that runs entirely off the energy inside a tree. I think I think I'll need some explanation as to exactly how that works. I mean, I'm sure that's reality, but first functioning electrical circuit that runs entirely off the energy inside a tree. Well, I think that one's all right. So it's either CAPTCHA or the MIT team, and I'll say I'll say the CAPTCHA one is fiction because it's they probably have the software that comes close to reading it as well as humans, but maybe not quite there yet, maybe 80% or 90% of what humans can do. So I'll say that one's fiction. Okay, Rebecca? Yeah, I think it's the as well as humans that's throwing me as well, because I haven't read this study at all, but there are programs out there that, or at least people are working on things that can read text, um, written text, scan it, and translate it into words. But uh, I don't think it's to the point yet where it's as good as a human eye. So I'm going to agree with my buddy Evan and say that that is fiction. We are buddies, aren't we? (laughs) High five, Evan. High five. There we go. Yeah. (laughs) All right, Jay, save the high five for the end. All right, Jay. Programmers have demonstrated visual recognition software that is able to read (laughs) CAPTCHA distorted text as well as humans. That's really interesting. I mean, you know, the, the obvious joke, like Evan said, is, you know, I find it hard to read myself sometimes. I did think the first time I, I found out what CAPTCHA was or I had used it, I remember thinking about it and, and wondering, you know, when are they going to be able to crack this one? So I, I don't think it's that far out there that they could come up with the software that that could take that image and uh, and be able to analyze it. The second one, a team at MIT has finally figured out the three-dimensional structure of cement. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I am sick right now. I'm heavily medicated. I don't get this question or this statement. Special pleading. Steve, three-dimensional structure of cement? Yeah. There's got to be other people out there listening to this show that don't understand what that is. Well, there are three dimensions. Yeah, what do you mean? Like how how cement like connects to itself, how it binds to itself, and how whatever kind All of... All right, you know how you wore special glasses when you saw, saw up? Yeah. It's like that. <laughs> You mean like what makes cement stick to itself? What makes it harden? How you yeah, know? That's that's close enough. Think that they would we would already know since it's so unbelievably widely used and tested and everything that wouldn't we know the chemical makeup of cement and then what 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 how that plays itself out? I don't know. 
I would I would think that we would have maybe we did, but the team at MIT didn't, and they finally figured it out. I would find it hard to believe that we didn't have a very strong idea about how cement works a long time ago. The third one: engineers have developed the first functioning electrical circuit that runs entirely off the energy inside a tree. Absolutely, I can't. I really could buy that. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. So I'm going to go out on a limb, and I'm going to say that number huh. two is the is the MIT figuring out the three-dimensional structure of cement. That's the fake. Okay, Bob. Um, I'll start. I'm going to start with number two about cement. I'm going to disagree with with you, Jay. I could. It's a little bit of a surprise that we don't have it entirely figured out. But also on the other side, the other side of the coin, I'm not really surprised that there's some subtleties to cement that we haven't I, apparently until now truly figured out. Uh, you know, that ultimate unit of cementness. So that one doesn't surprise me that bad. The electrical circuit running off the tree energy. Yeah, that one sounds pretty plausible to me, too. I remember reading about uh, robots that were being developed that actually uh, ran off of, like, food metabolism, trying to get energy like, like animals do, living things do. Um, so then this one just seems a, a very similar idea to that. Um, so I'm not too surprised about that one. The capture one, no way, kids. It's not happening yet. <laughs> that is the one of the holy grails of visual recognition uh, <laughs> is, is to have machines that can read capture as well as humans. I definitely would have heard about that. That would be big, big news if they were able to do that at this point. If They'll crack it definitely at some point, but not quite yet. They have not figured that out yet. It'll happen, but uh, that's definitely fiction. Okay, so you all agree that engineers have developed the first functioning electrical circuit that runs entirely off the energy inside a tree, and that we are one so on to you, Steve. Is science, science, science. yay, science, yay, engineers, science, science. So yeah, you just plug this thing into a tree. They put cool. The, uh, they Our put energy circuit, problems are solved. You put one wire into the tree, the other wire into the dirt, and it generates a weak, you know, current. It's called a ground. They, That's the electricity of life, man. Yeah, you're not, you know, you I, see? You're not going to get much off of this, very, very little. But this could have practical applications, specifically if you need to have like monitoring devices out in the woods. You could plug them into the tree, and you know if it's not if it doesn't require that much juice to keep going, it, you could, it could be you know self-sustaining in that way. They say that it could generate a voltage of up to 200 millivolts. It's not very much. No. But take a whole bunch of trees and if you could plug them all gigahertz. together or something. And right. So that one's true. We'll take them in reverse order. A team at MIT has finally figured out the three-dimensional structure of cement. Jay, you think this one is fiction. Everyone else thinks this one science. is science. And this one is, hang on, Whoa. is... Science. Oh, oh come on, man! Ooh. Like really, I'm, I'm, I'm like really, I'm so off on this game this year. It's ridiculous. Oh, hugs, Jay, hugs. And, hugs. I, and oh. actually, <laughs> the, oh. cement's been around for it's a couple a thousand hug. years, and we actually oh, yeah. didn't really know, understand its three-dimensional structure. Uh, there were some theories. Um, we thought that its structure was similar to a mineral called tob- tobermite. Nope. Toblerone? Toblerone. <laughs> Tober- mm. <laughs> that is the most Tobermorite. delicious mineral. Tobermorite? Yeah, Tobermorite. But what they figured out is that the way they describe the three-dimensional structures, if you imagine a plane comp- mm. composed of crystal triangles, yeah. but every now and then one of the triangles is flipped perpendicular, either up or down, and is embedded 
in the layer of triangles above or below it. So that's how you ha that's how how it binds itself together, right? And they said that it's in a it's a hybrid between it's a hybrid. A, yeah, it's a hybrid between a crystalline structure and and an amorphous structure. So it's partly like glass wow. and partly like a crystal and they figured out this way in which it embeds together. So they did not did not previously know that. And I'm surprised to hear that. Yeah. I yeah, mean, we've been surprised that we didn't know. It's been around for 2,000 years. But it's been a tough nut to crack in terms of figuring out exactly the, how it, how the structure forms internally. I mean, the Romans used concrete. Yeah, you know? Par Parthenon. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I'm surprised to hear it, but it also just goes to show you, with all the science that, that we've done over the last 150 years, there's so much we still don't know, even about things that we're surrounded by. Right. Well, here's one less thing we don't know anything about. All of this means that programmers have demonstrated visual recognition software that is able to read capture distorted text as well as humans is completely fiction. Yeah, complete sure. fiction? It is complete fiction. In fact, yeah. in fact uh, scientists have recently done a study looking at the best capture uh, visual recognition software and concluded that it is nowhere near human ability at this ah. current time. Well, so my 80 to 90% accuracy is way off yeah. base. Do you guys know what CAPTCHA stands for? Yes. Uh, can't actually participate. <laughs> to, no. Well, I used to know. I mean, It means completely automated public Turing tests to tell computers and humans apart. That's right. That's correct, yep. Yeah. How long did it take them to come up with that? Awesome. That's cool. <laughs> that probably took a long time to come up with Right. So, but my question to you is, Steve, then why has CAPTCHA slowly evolved over the past few years to be more complicated? Why wouldn't they just keep the original version of it? What did the original look like? Well, a lot easier yeah, to yeah. read. Well, what they found is that even with the best programs, uh, it does not tolerate deviations from a standard set of letters well at all. And that's and it's interesting, you know, what the human brain does better than computers, and what computers do better than the human brain is an interesting topic. This is one of those things. This uh, certainly um, visual recognition in general is something that human brains do exceedingly well, uh, but this in particular uh, is is something that human brain do, does well, matching patterns that are representative, you know, but not specific. You know what I mean? So how, like, that's how there could be so many different fonts, right? Right. I mean, how is it that you, you can recognize a letter A in a thousand different fonts? There's the A-ness about it that your brain gets that it understands. Pattern recognition, sort of. Yeah, it's absolutely pattern yeah, recognition, exactly. but it's more than it's it's a, it's an abstract form of pattern recognition that we're very good at. That computers are just they're not functioning in that way. I read I read about hackers that actually use people to do the capture because we're so far away from actually yeah, yeah, automating yeah. that. They actually they just have people do it. It's very slow, of course, but they, they need the people. But it, it, another aspect of that, though, is that I think it's a great way to, you know, perhaps it, like accelerate the evolution of computer pattern recognition because you know these hackers are working on this hard, <laughs> yeah. hard. Or whoever cracks that, I mean, if, if somehow a hacker can crack this before, say, MIT – Boy, for a, for a little while, they're going to have quite an edge. But I wonder, Bob, is this a software problem? Is this the kind of thing that raw computing power is going to be able to, to overcome? Or is it that human brains are massively parallel 
and nothing short of that is going to be is going to be good at this kind of problem solving. Mm, you know, uh, perhaps. I mean, what if have they ever tried using a high end supercomputer to do this? I don't think so, but I don't think it would, even a high, you know, the highest, the fastest supercomputer yeah. could could handle it. Well, I, um, I, I, here's my prediction. I think that with current hardware designs, we'll be able to do this with a virtual model of uh, of the human brain, or at least that subset of it, like the visual cortex, right. which we're already working on, and we've already shown that that virtual models of columns or parts of the human brain can actually function as software, right? It actually can do yes. it could, it can yep. do the function that you're that you're duplicating. So I think that that could be a pathway to to solving capture, making I a agree. virtual I, visual cortex basically. All right, well, we only have a, we don't have that much time left, so let's do Let's get right to it. Here it is. Long months I've tried to keep this thing from happening, but I now see it's the will of sovereign being that this happened to us. That we lay down our lives in what's being done. The criminality of people, the cruelty of people. Who walked out of here today? Did you notice who walked out? Mostly white people. And a lot of people guessed that correctly, that that was in fact the Reverend Jim Jones. Jimmy Jones! The final recording of the most horrific, one of the most horrific recorded events in uh, human history. I mean, if you go back and you listen to that entire 45-minute segment of you know his final babble as people are committing suicide in the background with children screaming. It was more of a mass as murder, they're, actually. As they're dying. Yeah, okay, mass murder. I, I agree with that. I, it's, it, was, it was very hard to listen to and have to actually yeah. pull some sort of audio. But we need to be reminded that... Which people are capable of. Yeah, yep, and what uh, lack of critical thinking can do. Yeah. Profoundly. Uh, large amounts of people. Yes. I'm actually cool without the reminder. You're good. I don't really need the reminder. All right, I promise I won't use that again I read it. ever. I read it. <laughs> Thank you. No problem. <laughs> All right, what do you got oh. for this week, guys? I wrote on well, my, like, uh, I have a little uh, white board here, a little dry erase board. <laughs> board. Remember, humans are dicks. <laughs> who, got that, who, who got that first, Evan? Marty from the message boards. Congratulations, Marty. Marty. And a lot of other people picked up on it, too. Yeah, yeah, we saw a lot of correct answers there. However, there is this week's, which I'm going to play for you now, and we'll see who gets this one. All right. Oh, that sounds familiar. All right, folks, so give it your best shot. Good luck. All right, guys, so when this show goes up, we will be at the the first Nexus Con. I, hope that I can't well. wait, guys. I'm, yeah. I cannot wait. That's not the only cool event coming up. If you guys miss Dragon Con, like half the people at Dragon Con are going to be at Nexus. And then the following Tuesday, the 15th, mm-hmm. we're going to have a very special Boston Skeptics in the Pub with special guest Australian scientist, blogger, and podcaster, Dr. Rachel Dunlop, a.k.a. Dr. Rachie. So I'm really looking forward to that. We're going to have so much fun. We always do. We're going to go back to the live show just for the quote, and that will end out the show for this week. I have a really awesome quote. This quote, obviously, as you can read it, but I'm going to say it. Uh, this guy walked by the table yesterday, looked at the, this, the skeptic sign and everything, and was, 
Skeptics, they only believe in science. And pretty much, we all like, we're like, really? Alright, so this guy's name is... Anonymous Dragon Con Loser! Thank all of you guys for coming. It's always awesome to be at these live events. Thank you so much. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation and Skeptic.org. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by voting for us on Dig or leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find links to these sites and others through our homepage. Theorem is produced by Kineto and is used with permission. Yeah.